Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Cast episode 665, The Age of Reionization. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, a weekly facts based journey through the cosmos where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today. With me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a senior scientist for the Planetary Science Institute and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I, I'm doing well. Right now, the American Astronomical Society meeting is taking place in Seattle. And uh, I, I was watching the beginning of a press conference earlier before we went live, and there is so much JWST science yeah. that's going to come out this week. It's 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 tasty, awesome goodness. Yeah, yeah. I got up early, got as much of my news organized and out of the way because I just need to be prepared for the ongoing onslaught. tidal wave, the onslaught. Of news and and normally, you know, when the astronomy panels come out, there's a few interesting takeaways. But mm-hmm. I can go a day without saying, okay, that's really interesting, and we should cover that during the AAS. So you know, yeah. a couple. But I'm sure this one, each one is going to be superlative, right? This is going to be the most of this and the and most extreme that, and the first time we've ever seen this, and this theory has been overturned. It's going to be a monumental week in astronomy and science. The first time astronomers got a chance to use JWST and they are going to run with it. Yeah. Yeah. And and we're looking at a couple of decades of this. And what I'm also enjoying is there are some hints coming out that it is being considered if they can reboost HST to allow it to keep working for a little bit longer. Yeah. So we might be looking at this nice era of having good coverage from slightly into the ultraviolet all the way in to the far infrared ish, not too far because they don't have a lot of coolant, but, um, it's a good age for discovery. The cosmic microwave background radiation tells us so much about the universe. But after that era, the universe went dark. Then, as gas pulled together into the first stars and eventually galaxies, light returned, beginning the age of reionization. I've always had a really hard time wrapping my mind around those early phases. 
from the cosmic microwave background mm-hmm. to the dark ages to the age of reionization. So can you explain that process for everybody and I will finally get it into my head? I I can try. So so as the story goes, universe formed uh, there was massive heat and energy, and for the tiniest bit of time, the universe didn't have any stuff in it. But as it expanded and cooled, expanded and cooled, particles came into existence. And at a point about 370,000 years after the formation of the universe, Things cooled enough that all of the previously free-flying electrons were able to find a hydrogen or helium or maybe, if they were lucky, a lithium or beryllium atom to glom onto. And this, this process of the electrons joining in with the atomic nuclei allowed the photons that previously had tried to go somewhere and then gotten absorbed and tried to go somewhere and gotten absorbed, allowed them to finally just fly free. Mm-hmm. And so this moment of the universe cooling enough that atoms could form and photons could fly free is the moment the cosmic microwave background was formed. And now, I think, so. sorry, before we move on, I just want to sort of put a couple of other notes on that. So the first thing is, is like, if you could stand there when these electrons or when, sorry, when these photons are first trying to f- fly around, what would it look like? What color would it be? The, the best way to think of it that I have is uh, you're going to have all the, the colors, first of all, because this is just like continuum radiation. Um, and it's, super hot, so peaking in the ultraviolet. And at the moment that this occurred, it would be kind of like turning off a neon light or a fluorescent light where you go from having light coming out um, but not getting anywhere so right. you're standing there, and the photons that are lucky enough to have been created right beside your eyeballs go into your eyeballs. But but the light itself can't really get anywhere. Right. It's trapped in this stuff. So it's like being inside the neon light. Right, right, right. But And and then the other thing is, is that we sort of you, – you described it. Again, it's like turning off a neon light. But it's, mm-hmm. it wasn't instantaneous. No. It was – it was a gradual process to go from no light can escape to now light gets to move for a centimeter. Now light gets to move for a meter. Now it gets to move for a kilometer. And eventually it got, got to move for light years. And and it's unclear how fast that process happened. It, it was something where areas of the universe that had a higher density – well, they also had a higher temperature, and areas that had a lower density had a lower temperature, and those lower temperature regions were the first to be able to go, hi, here's the cosmic microwave background. Now, the, the thing that always gets me is we talk about how the universe was opaque when all these neutral atoms were formed, but we also say this in the same breath that we say 
the cosmic microwave background was released, which clearly we can see. So mm-hmm. how is it that we're seeing the cosmic microwave background if we now have an opaque, completely neutral universe? And the, the answer to that is that for the most part, the cosmic microwave background just passes straight through because of its wavelength. Which is a bit confusing. Oh, okay. So, like, it, it was a wavelength of light, kind of reddish. Like, like I always describe it, like, if you did it, sort of like the surface of a red giant star, that, that that wavelength was the one that could actually make it out further into the universe than, than other wavelengths. And, and so we see, and because when, when, if you redshift the cosmic microwave background all the way, like right now it's microwave, but if you right. redshift it all the way back to the beginning of the universe, it's roughly the surface of Betelgeuse. And, and so this light is able to, for the most part, make it through. But what's cool is, is we're finally starting to be able to detect the early moments in our universe where the universe still had pockets of neutral gas and these pockets of neutral gas are actually causing defects irregularities in the cosmic microwave background so we can see the epoch of reionization and before it using the irregularities in the cosmic microwave background and so this pushed into the dark ages yes and so why were the dark ages dark well, there is nothing giving off light. So, so you have two different problems going on. First of all, you have no stars, you have no galaxies, you got nothing. Right. And the other thing is you have a cloud of fairly dense uh, neutral hydrogen and helium, and that's going to absorb light that's coming at it once there is light. So you start off with the, the dark ages as there's just nothing giving off light. So right. then stars start to form, galaxies start to form, and the first ones forming are having some of their light absorbed. And what's cool is we're using this absorption of light as seen in uh, distant quasars, to start pinpointing the moment in history that reionization occurred. All right, so give us the physics description of what ionization is and sort of as it relates to star stuff. All right, so so you have, you have your hydrogen nuclei. It has a proton, some number of neutrons, depending on what version of hydrogen it is, and a happy little electron if it's neutral. And that electron has certain allowed energy levels. The, these allowed energy levels uh, mean that if a photon hits the electron, only if the photon has the right energy level to allow it to jump between the different levels will that electron move. It, it can be thought of as... If you're on the stairwell, you're either on step one or step two. You can't be on step one and a half unless you have anti-gravity boots, in which case (laughs) we've broken the analogy. Now, photons come along, and if they have just the right energy level, that electron that absorbs the photon is going to jump to a higher energy level. And if the photon has a high enough energy, that electron is just going to go away. 
no more electron. And it's that process of removing an electron that's called ionization. Now, with hydrogen, you only have one electron to get rid of. With helium, you have two to try and get rid of that are in their own little energy levels, and so you need more energy to get rid of both of them. And as you have more and more complex atoms, you can have something that's like singly ionized. That means you got rid of one of its electrons. Mm, You can have something that's doubly ionized. You've gotten rid of two of its electrons. And if you have a fully ionized iron, it's had a really bad day. (laughs) Right, with with (laughs) shell after shell of ionized electrons. Um, so, so the point being that the electrons are no longer in place around the nucleus. They are free-flowing yes. around. And, and it's when, and so that is ionized. Mm-hmm. And when the electrons pair up with the nucleus to form more, I don't know, stable atoms, but anyway, neutral. that is neutral. They're electrically yeah. neutral. Right. And they are no longer ionized. So. Yes. So we've got these newly forming, we've got all this neutral hydrogen that is left over. So in other words, we, the universe was ionized, mm-hmm. then it became unionized because it had cooled down, and you've got all this, just a soup of hydrogen, neutral yes. hydrogen, where you've got hydrogen with its electron, and then they collapse together in these star-forming processes to form these stars. They heat up, and then... They ionize their surroundings. So this is where it gets super cool. Okay. Pop three stars, which we talked about in the last episode, really, really big. And their high energy photons are have an easy time escaping from the core because there's no heavy elements in the atmosphere of the star to absorb out those high energy uh, photons and then re-release them as lower energy photons. So we have population three stars forming. They are giving off ultraviolet and even higher energy ionizing radiation. So we have population three stars giving off all of this radiation. And this is where dwarf galaxies finally get to do something awesome. (laughs) Where you have massive galaxies. Massive galaxies are going to have a whole lot of dense neutral gas around them. Because more gas to form more galaxy, essentially. The little tiny dwarf galaxies don't have as much stuff around them. So the stars inside of them are able to give off this ionizing radiation that can escape in much larger amounts. 50% of the ionizing radiation in a dwarf galaxy is able to escape the dwarf galaxy. And this light is going to ionize a larger and larger bubble, first around each star, then those bubbles will merge and then Hmm. around the galaxy, and now you have all these little dwarf galaxies that are just ionizing a Swiss cheese of growing bubbles of no longer neutral gas. So, I mean, are there some some examples of a very similar situation happening in the universe today? Like, I think about the the bubbles in the pillars of creation. These 
is that the same kind of thing where you've got this young hot star that is blowing out this cavity and ionizing the gas around it? It's it's a very similar physical process. I mean, the science is the science. So when you have a star-forming system, you have a giant molecular cloud. First of all, you're not really going to have molecules other than, like, H2 in the early mm-hmm. universe. So you have a giant molecular cloud of all sorts of different gases. And as it collapses down and fragments, these different fragments are going to form stars that are able to blow bubbles around them, including H2 regions, which is is the ionized uh, uh, gas around these young stars. So you have the same physics. It's just much more interesting because you're throwing in molecules that can now uh, emit their own colors of light, allowing us to peer through the gas and dust using uh, radio and uh, infrared telescopes. And so once again, if you could be there standing in space a safe distance or maybe an invulnerable <laughs> distance from the star. This, you know, we talked about this last week, these gigantic mm-hmm. stars at the very edge of what is possible for a star. What would you see? I, this would be a case of if you were able to fully protect yourself, it mm-hmm. would yeah, be very no much like being underwater where your headlight or in a fog cloud where your headlight allows you to see a certain distance around you. But beyond that, it's just opaque. Hmm. So as you're near that one just formed starting to ionize the, the space around its star, you have this place where all of the ionizing radiation has been absorbed and done its job and beyond it it's just opaque gas and you have a wall wow and it, it would be like this the star would have probably with its its stellar winds would probably be off the charts and so it would have cleared out any additional materials you'd have this empty space yeah and then whatever distance where the where the edge of the bubble was forming you would have this reionized gas in this giant sphere around the star and if you could somehow navigate, you would see them, these blobs of hydrogen with little gaps inside of them where the stars were forming. And, and what starts to get super hmm. cool to imagine is if you're hanging out in one of these bubbles, and, and this would require time travel because there weren't enough heavy atoms to, to make anything resembling a civilization. So mm-hmm. if you yeah, try yeah, time traveled yeah. into one of these bubbles, it would eventually merge with another bubble. So you'd have this window into another mm. area that you could see into that was ionized. And over time, these bubbles would essentially merge with one another, creating a sphere filled with stars, just like when you look at some star-forming regions, you can see that central region. I'm thinking of the Omega Nebula here, that central region that has been cleared out by the star formation and is still surrounded by gas. No dust back then, no dust. So how long did this period take, do we think? 
we're trying to figure this out and trying to figure this out is a complicated task on two different fronts. So on front one, we need to be able to figure out the expansion rate of the universe so we can translate uh, the, the red shifts, the amount that the different lines being emitted by atoms uh, have been shifted uh, into years and we also need to observe. What I can tell you is uh, the the galaxies that have quasars in their hearts that we've been able to see in the earliest parts of the universe, they're giving off uh, extremely bright light that as it travels from that quasar towards us, it's going to encounter pockets of gas along the way. And these pockets of gas represent... Uh, areas that are eventually going to become star formation, the material around galaxies between here and there, and some of them represent not yet ionized clouds of material. And when we look at galaxies at Z equals 6, we're seeing pockets of this material. But when we're looking at Z equals 5 point something, They've looked at a variety of these systems, and it appears that already at that point the universe was fully ionized. So, can you translate that for the process. for the non <laughs> dead? Like, what is a five point six or six? Because I know like so, like fourteen is oh, sorry, like uh, twenty seventeen. Like these new ones that are coming out of JWST, these are three hundred million years after the Big Bang. Yeah. But, so, so we're thinking that all of this occurred between 150 million and 1 billion years right. ago. Okay. And trying to figure out exactly when in there it was done. We know it started around 150 million. We know it was done by 1 billion. Where in between those right. two that it was done, we're still figuring out. And the process, I guess the process is uneven, that you've got yeah. different amounts of gas, different strengths of stars, different size collections, which were probably linked up to over densities and under densities in the cosmic microwave background. And so different parts collected together, heated up, cleared out sooner than others. Exactly. And and like I said, the, the really cool thing is the dwarf galaxies literally got to shine and it was the area around the biggest hmm. galaxies that because they had so much more material that they had to ionize, the areas around the biggest galaxies took a little bit longer to clear the way. So what are our tools to perceive this time? Well, the, the best tool that we have is gravitationally lensed galaxies that exist back behind uh, galaxy clusters. And those galaxy clusters help magnify the amount of light that we're able to get. And then we point our infrared telescopes like JWST at those gravitationally lensed galaxies from the beginning of the universe. And we look for quasars. And once we find those quasars, we use them to figure out where in the quasar's history do we see what kinds of material, well, essentially grabbing out the light. This for uh, uh, the collections of gas that are more close by, it's the Lyman Alpha Forest, um, and then we're looking back at the stuff that just hasn't ionized yet. So, so we're seeing the light of the quasar 
through yes. the gravitational lens because only only yes. by harnessing the, the gravitational attraction of an entire galaxy cluster can you make a telescope powerful enough to be able to see this period. You're looking yes. at these quasars, gravitationally lensed quasars. And are you seeing them, you're seeing the light from the quasar go through yes. pockets of gas and dust that are in various states of ionization. You mentioned the Lyman forest. What is that? So so what's happening is you have the background quasar is giving off light um, where Lyman alpha is one of the... the easier to spot lines of, of light. Now, that Lyman alpha uh, gas, that in the emission lines can allow us to figure out where quasars are. Now, the quasars, in addition to having this entire um, suite of emission and absorption lines, also have the continuum radiation that they're giving off. That continuum radiation as it travels towards us is going to have the hydrogen gas, pockets of hydrogen gas, absorb out different uh, colors depending on where in history they are. So the light that was absorbed out at 2 billion years after the Big Bang by hydrogen gas is going to be redshifted to be one color. And that is a Lyman alpha line that has now been redshifted into a color we can detect from right. the ultraviolet into the reds. Right. From a different age, it's going to have a different wavelength. So we have the continuum radiation from the quasar that is going to have this forest of what was hydrogen Lyman alpha absorption lines from an entire suite of different points in history where hmm. there were clouds of gas located to absorb the light. So the light from this quasar is going through multiple gas clouds and you're seeing yes. the you're seeing the forest with all of these trees. Now those forests that you're seeing aren't the the not yet ionized gas left over from the Big Bang. That actually gets its own name, which as someone with dyslexia I have to be careful with because it's called the gun Peterson trough, and my brain has decided it should be the Peter Gunn trough, which would be far more amusing. Right, right, right. So the Gunn-Peterson trough is is this gap that we can see, a literal trough in, in the light from the most distant quasars that is there from the neutral gas that wasn't ionized in the beginning. And this is what we're desperately looking for using JWST so that by finding enough faraway quasars with these Gunn-Peterson troughs, while Peter Gunn plays in the background, (laughs) uh, we are able to say, okay, so we're seeing these troughs in, in quasars at these specific points in history, and then we don't see them anymore. That Mm. tells us everything was ionized by this point in history. Very cool. And as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, be prepared. There's probably going to be a bunch of news coming out about the age of reionization just in this week's American Astronomical Society. So hopefully now you will be better able to understand it like me. I think I get it now. So I think we're all right. I'm so glad. Nice. It's not easy. 
Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Pamela. Thank you, Fraser. And I need to thank our wonderful patrons who are out there supporting this show. You allow us to pay all of our humans and, where needed, provide them with health benefits. And that is kind of awesome. This week, I would like to thank by name Bury Gowan, Stephen Veit, Gordon Young, Kevin Lyle, Jeanette Wink, Nano Flips, Bora Andre Livesvol, Andrew Palestra, Venkatesh Chari, Brian Kegel, David Throg, uh, Gerhard Schweitzer, Buzz Parsec, Zero Chill, uh, Laurel Kedison, Robert Plasma, uh, Jack Mudge, Les Howard, Adam Anise Brown, Joe Holstein, Frank Trippen, uh, Gordon Dewis, Richard Drum, Alexis, Wanderer, M101, Fleek Scoot, N Through Sets, William Andres, Gold, Roland Vormerdam, Jeff Collins, and Simon Parton. And all of you who join our Patreon will have access to an ad-free version of all of our episodes. So if you're noticing ads in the episodes, go join Patreon. Do it. Join us. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you next week. (laughs) Bye-bye. Astronomy Cast is a joint product of Universe Today and the Planetary Science Institute. Astronomy Cast is released under a Creative Commons attribution license. So love it, share it, and remix it. But please, credit it to our hosts, Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can get more information on today's show topic on our website, astronomycast.com. This episode was brought to you thanks to our generous patrons on Patreon. If you want to help keep this show going, please consider joining our community at patreon.com slash astronomycast. Not only do you help us pay our producers a fair wage, you will also get special access to content right in your inbox and invites to online events. We are so grateful to all of you who have joined our Patreon community already. Anyways, keep looking up. This has been Astronomy Cast.